Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is... Four score and seven years ago, when in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February 6, 1911 to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 1989. My name is Ewan Morgan. I'm professor of U.S. studies at University College London in the U.K., Ronald Reagan and his aides get deeper and deeper enmeshed in selling arms to Iran. And the inevitable happens that the news gets out in October 1986. A Lebanese magazine published a story that the Americans were selling arms to the Iranians in the hope that the Iranians would broker the release of hostages held in Lebanon. And there was a furore. Almost a month later, in Nicaragua, a helicopter bearing arms to the Contras was shot down by Nicaraguan forces. And suddenly, the whole episode had become public knowledge. The Iran-Contra scandal was therefore now in the public. And the only thing that Ronald Reagan didn't know about the Iran-Contra scandal was that Oliver North had 
redirected monies that the Iranians had paid for their weapons to the Contras. But everything else he was up to speed on, he knew about, and suddenly he is facing a possible impeachment crisis, just like Richard Nixon a decade and a half earlier. This is Jim McGovern with Telstar News. With us today in the studio is Senator Eugene McCarthy. And Senator McCarthy, why don't we just hit head-on the prominent news story of the day, the secret Reagan arms deal to uh, Iran, and is there enough violation of the law, do you think, to ask for an impeachment of Ronald Reagan? Well, Jim, I think it comes very close to that uh, in the course of the roughly 35 years that I've been associated with politics. There have been three or four presidential actions uh, by different presidents, all of which I think touched upon the, the issue of impeachment. There were uh, some things done in the Eisenhower administration through the CIA, principally under Alan Dulles. There were a few things done in the Kennedy administration. There were some special actions in the Nixon administration. The uh, most serious one was I, I never thought it was Watergate in terms of presidential responsibility. I thought the so-called incursion of Cambodia came closer to being an impeachable presidential action than anything connected to Watergate. And now in the case of of Ronald Reagan, I do think that uh, the actions with reference to arms sales or arms distribution to Iran, if we were looking at impeachment in terms of, say, the debate on the Constitution, come very close to having been classed as one of the actions which would be subject to congressional action, to impeachment, and possibly to a conviction on the part of the, the, of the Senate. Well, Senator, why is it that uh, presidents become involved in this thing? Is it they don't know the law, or is it they get so carried away with the prominence of their office? What is it? Do you have a diagnosis of I think it, it's part of, of a sort of growing, almost a tradition of the imperial president, in which the president accepts that he's, he either doesn't understand the constitutional limitations of the office, I think Truman was the last president we had who had a clear sense of that. And so progressively, one president succeeding another builds on what the other one has done. And you can, you can almost, with reference to the use of the CIA, you, you can almost trace a, a direct advance in the manner in which uh, that agency was used as a presidential instrument, almost without any restraints. Until in the case of Reagan, uh, because of some demands that the CIA uh, report to Congress, uh, evidently the administration decided they had to go even beyond the CIA and have a more secret uh, inner ring, which was not subject to, they thought, to any kind of constitutional judgment or congressional judgment. His public opinion ratings plummet. He has uh, the sharpest decline in uh, Gallup approval rating in the history of Gallup polling in November 1986. And Reagan learns from Nixon's mistakes in Watergate. Nixon, of course, continued to cover up when he should have come clean. And what Reagan did was that he appointed a commission and the former Senator John Tower, uh, known as the Tower Commission, to investigate what had happened in Iran-Contra, and he promised full cooperation with the investigators. Well, Reagan did not perform very well when he was interrogated by the commission, 
and there were growing concerns about his in mental infirmity. But in reality, if you compare his public statements with his, what was going on in his diary writings, he still got it. But Reagan was largely exonerated by the Tower Commission. And there were three people who came out of it very badly. Oliver North, National Security Advisor John Poindexter, and Reagan Chief of Staff Donald Reagan. But the president himself was largely exonerated. But he was advised to go on national television and make some statement of contrition. He made the statement on national television in 87. My fellow Americans, I have spoken to you from this historic office on many occasions and about many things. For the past three months, I've been silent on the revelations about Iran. And you must have been thinking, well, why doesn't he tell us what's happening? Well, the reason I haven't spoken to you before now is this. You deserve the truth. And as frustrating as the waiting has been, I felt it was improper to come to you with sketchy reports or possibly even erroneous statements. I paid a price for my silence in terms of your trust and confidence. But I've had to wait, as you have, for the complete story. I'm often accused of being an optimist, and it's true. I had to hunt pretty hard to find any good news in the board's report. But I was very relieved to read this sentence. The board is convinced that the president doesn't deem want the full story to be told. And tonight, I want to share with you my thoughts on these findings and report to you on the actions I'm taking to implement the board's recommendations. First, let me say I take full responsibility for my own actions and for those of my administration. As angry as I may be about activities undertaken without my knowledge, I am still accountable for those activities. And as personally distasteful as I find secret bank accounts and diverted funds, as the Navy would say, this happened on my watch. Let's start with the part that is the most controversial. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. And he made the famous remark, My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. It was some kind of fudge. Ronald Reagan got away with it. He could have got into very serious trouble. He had uh, broken the law on several occasions by, uh, by uh, giving arms, giving aid to the Nicaraguan Contras in violation of uh, congressional resolutions. He had violated international agreements not to sell arms to Iran, and he had failed to live up to the take care clause. The take care clause of the American Constitution requires that the president take care that the laws be faithfully executed, something Reagan had patently failed to do. Now, why did he escape impeachment when Richard Nixon hadn't a decade and a half earlier? Well, there are numerous reasons. Firstly, there was impeachment fatigue. To impeach a president so soon after Nixon had undergone the process, was too far for most people. Secondly, he had not engaged in illegal activities for personal gain. Uh, Nixon, of course, had done so in Watergate to help uh, him become reelected. Reagan was doing it from a misguided view of the national interest and at least trying to get 
American hostages out of Lebanon. And the third reason is that had Reagan been taken down, it would have severely affected the negotiations that were currently ongoing with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev that promised to bring the Cold War with the Soviet Union to a peaceful conclusion. Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel and this is Nightline. This time, the Soviets seem to have opted for a long-term change. The man who took charge within hours of Konstantin Chernyenko's death represents a new generation. But what else does he represent? And what, if anything, should we expect of those U.S.-Soviet arms talks, which get underway, as scheduled, tomorrow morning? We'll talk live with Henry Kissinger, with former British Minister of Defense Dennis Healy, and with a former high-ranking Soviet diplomat, Arkady Shevchenko. The transitional period, it would seem, is over. Another Soviet leader who was too old and too sick when he took power to hold on to it has died. And now a 54-year-old has taken over, someone who, theoretically at least, will be around for a generation. Get used to the name, Mikhail Gorbachev. According to at least normal life expectancy, Gorbachev should have plenty of time to put his mark on Soviet affairs and take note of something else. Tomorrow morning in Geneva, just a few hours before the late Soviet president, Konstantin Chernyenko, is buried, U.S.-Soviet arms talks get underway. Certainly, American negotiators would have understood if their Soviet counterparts had requested a 48-hour delay, but no one even asked. In early 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And at last, Reagan has somebody in the Kremlin who wants to do business with him. Gorbachev is the new breed Soviet leader who realizes that the Soviet economy cannot bear the pressure of keeping up arms and spending to the level required by the Cold War. He wants to focus on internal reform in the Soviet Union, restructuring the economy and so forth. And to be able to do this, he has to negotiate a de-escalation of the Cold War. And that means he has to deal with Ronald Reagan. Reagan and Gorbachev agreed to meet in a summit in Geneva in November 1985. Good morning, everyone. The moment is at hand. President Reagan now is at a lakeside mansion about eight miles north of Geneva. Flordeaux, it is called, the Flower Water House. And it is there that the president will meet this morning with Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union. The first meeting between the leaders of the two most powerful forces in the history of civilization in more than six years now. And it will be a dramatic opening session. The two men will meet one-on-one with only their translators present in a small room just off to the side of the main meeting room. And there they will exchange views. Mikhail Gorbachev, 55 years old, the bold and younger leader of the Soviet Communist Party, shaking hands with Ronald Wilson Reagan. That summit is significant, not for anything that is agreed there, but for the fact that the two leaders have an opportunity to size each other up and recognize that they both want to de-escalate Cold War tensions, reduce nuclear weaponry, and make a for a better relationship between their two countries. Now, November 1985, the next summit is almost a year later in Reykjavik, 
Iceland in October 1986. And this is a remarkable summit because Gorbachev and Reagan seek to outdo each other in what they prepared to put on the table. This is a CBS News special report. Reporting live from Reykjavik, Iceland, here is Dan Rather. Thank you very much. President Reagan has just started to make his departure statement. My fellow Americans, as you know, General Secretary Gorbachev and I were to have concluded our talks at noon after more than seven and a half hours of meetings over the last two days. But when the hour for departure arrived, we both felt that further discussions would be valuable. So I called Nancy and told her I wouldn't be home for dinner. Well, the talks we've just concluded were hard and tough, and yet I have to say extremely useful. We spoke about arms control, human rights, and regional conflicts. And of course, Mr. Gorbachev and I were frank about our disagreements. We had to be. In several critical areas, we made more progress than we anticipated when we came to Iceland. We moved toward agreement on drastically reduced numbers of intermediate-range nuclear missiles in both Europe and Asia. But there remained, at the end of our talks, one area of disagreement. While both sides seek reduction in the number of nuclear missiles and warheads threatening the world, the Soviet Union insisted that we sign an agreement that would deny to me and to future presidents for 10 years the right to develop, test, and deploy a defense against nuclear missiles for the people of the free world. This we could not and will not do. Same time President Reagan was speaking, they, they the General Secretary of the Commerce Party in the Soviet they, Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, was continuing his news conference at a theater in downtown Eklavik, Iceland, about 35 minutes drive from where the president was. The first summit had largely dealt with highly specific issues that were trimming at the margin. But the second summit really goes for big issues. And it comes to an end with both Gorbachev and Reagan on the verge of agreeing the total elimination of their nuclear arsenals. It's a remarkable situation, but there's one problem. Gorbachev insists that Reagan includes a strategic defense initiative as part of the deal. And this Reagan is unwilling to do, not because he fears that the Soviet Union will attack the United States, but because he feared that somewhere down the line, some crackpot dictator will get hold of, a, uh, of nuclear weapons in a minor country and attack the United States with them, which, if it doesn't have its own nuclear weapons, would rely on SDI to uh, defend it and knock down any future nuclear attack. Now, Reagan looks at SDI as extremely important. Of course, SDI is at the planning stage. It has never been developed, but Reagan is looking to the future. So SDI appears to be the sticking point that will prevent a settlement of Soviet-American differences. But Gorbachev has shown his hand at Reykjavik. It's clear that he wants to de-escalate the Cold War and get on with internal reforms. And he decides that this has to be his priority. 
so that he takes his insistence on including SDI in any deal off the table in the middle of 1987. And this opens the way for the first treaty of the Cold War era that uh, allows for the reduction of nuclear weapons rather than simply the control of numbers. And the both sides during negotiations at Gorm agree what becomes the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty of 1987. Now, Gorbachev and Reagan have not played a part in the negotiations. That's done by arms control specialists on both sides. But they have to sign the treaty. And Gorbachev goes to Washington for the third summit in December 1987. And the two leaders sign the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty. What's very interesting about the Washington summit of 1987 is that Gorbachev is the star of the show. Gorby mania takes off in the United States. Gorbachev behaves like a Western politician. A car is taken in from the Soviet embassy to the White House and he tells it to stop and he gets out and starts shaking hands with the crowds. Amazing for a Soviet leader. And Reagan is asked, uh, do you mind being upstage by Mr. Gorbachev? And he said, goodness me, not. I used to act with Errol Flynn. Good afternoon, I'm Paul Majors. Gorbachev's six-hour visit is generating more interest and attention than any local event in recent memory. I was at the, the convention in Dallas when Reagan was uh, renominated in, in 84. That was big. This dwarfs that. It's one of those events that, um, as a reporter, you want somehow to maintain that cynicism that you've cultivated over the years but you still find that enthusiasm come bubbling up over the cynicism all the time. It's a real thrilling thing to be a part of. There's Gorbachev and his wife, Teresa. President Gorbachev is uh, getting a loud uh, response from the members of the public. He's on the far side of his limousine there. Well, he's walking around it, maybe. Let's see if he comes to the crowd. He's moving in this direction. (laughs) Here he comes. He's coming over to the crowd now to greet. It's pure Gorbachev. No doubt a pleasant moment for him. You know, there obviously has to be concern when he walks among the crowds in Moscow. Everyone's got a criticism for him, and yet... Here he is being warmly embraced and greeted. You can certainly see the joy in his eyes. Right behind me, members of the press and members of the uh, general public are running down the street to catch a glimpse of Soviet President Gorbachev as he jumps out of his Zill limousine. Oh, he's out of the car again. (laughs) Oh, Oh. tell you, I'm really restraining myself because what I want to do is jump off his ladder and run down the street myself. Well, he may walk right up to you. Just hang in tight. I wish happiness and well-being. Reagan is playing Gorbachev very well because prior to the Washington summit in June 1987, he has sent a clear signal to Gorbachev that simply eliminating nuclear weapons isn't going to end Cold War tensions. And this is when he goes to Berlin to give an address in the shadow of the Berlin Wall. Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city, part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open 
this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now, this is probably Reagan's most famous speech where he called on Gorbachev to tear down this wall if you really want to end the Cold War. Now, that is a signal to Gorbachev. He has to give freedoms and civil liberties to the citizens of the Soviet satellites in Eastern Europe. It's not enough just to eliminate weaponry for the Cold War to end. Now, at the time, people thought that Reagan was being completely off the wall. This was just Reagan reverting to Cold War type. But in reality, two years later, two and a half years later, when the wall comes down, Ronald Reagan is forever more linked with that episode in European and world history. Now, the signing of the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty was the first stage. The treaty had to be ratified by the U.S. Senate, and it comes under attack from a whole host of groups in the United States. Although it's popular with the public, there are three groups of critics. One, the foreign policy establishment. Foreign policy establishment believes in deterrence, that you keep your nuclear arsenal strong as the best way of ensuring peace. And probably the most famous voice in this group is that of former President Richard Nixon, who is extremely critical of Reagan and believes that Gorbachev has hoodwinked him. The second group are the hawks within Reagan's own administration, and a bureaucratic battle goes on between Secretary of State George Shultz, who is passionate about arms reduction, and Gustav Weinberger, Secretary of Defense, who believes that the more nuclear weapons you have, the safer you are. That bureaucratic battle is won by Schultz because he is really articulating Reagan's own ideals on this score. And uh, Weinberger leaves the administration in mid-1987, as do a number of other hawks in lesser positions. So that threat is eliminated. But there is another problem, and this is conservative Republicans uh, who sit in the Senate, and they are led by Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina, And they insist there can be no negotiations with the Soviet Union because communism is an evil that has to be eradicated. They attempt to block the ratification of the treaty, but their efforts end in abject failure. The treaty is overwhelmingly ratified in the Senate. But the conservative Republicans have achieved one thing. Because it takes so long to ratify the agreement, uh, the Americans and the Russians cannot move on to the next stage, which is to negotiate the elimination of long-range nuclear weapons. So the next summit, which takes place in Moscow in May 1988, 
should have been a culmination of another stage in the elimination of nuclear weapons, but really becomes a demonstration of the new friendship between the Soviet Union and the United States. The, the, the summit does not produce any new settlement. It is quite clear that a major change has occurred, and this is symbolized when Reagan and Gorbachev take their famous walk in Red Square on the 31st of May, 1988. And here are the two leaders of two nations who have been at odds with each other and nearly come to blows with each other over the last 40 years. And here they are in friendly communion in Red Square. Now, Red Square, of course, is a symbol of Soviet military power. That's where the May Day parades are held. And here they are, Gorbachev and Reagan, celebrating peace. And the American media is watching them from a respectful distance. And a reporter shouts out, You still think yes, you're in an evil empire, Mr. President? And after a moment's pause, Reagan says, No, that was another time and another place. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. After the Moscow summit, Reagan begins to wind down his presidency towards his final days in office in January 1989. 
probably the highlight of the final day, the, the famous farewell address where he asks about the state of the nation in 1989. And he uses the famous analogy, the city on the hill. The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we'd call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of the Shining City all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with pre-ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. And how stands the city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. And he suggests that the city on the hill is a now much more secure, much more prosperous, much happier place than it had been some eight years earlier. Reagan, by this time, knows that his vice president, George H.W. Bush, is to succeed him. Reagan stayed broadly neutral in the battle for the Republican presidential nomination during the 1988 primary season. But he had developed a good relationship with George Bush during their time in office. He had given Bush significant responsibilities as vice president. He was entirely satisfied that Bush was to be his successor rather than Bush's main rival, Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. So Reagan leaves the White House in January 1989 to return to Los Angeles and to become a Californian again. Uh, Reagan loves California. He takes regular breaks from the White House during his uh, tenure in office. And it's been calculated that he spent something like a year of his eight years in office in his ranch in Santa Barbara atop a mountain range looking out over the Pacific Ocean. Reagan goes not to Santa Barbara Ranch after leaving the presidency, but he takes up residency in a very nice neighborhood of Los Angeles. He and Nancy get a new home. They haven't had a home of their own for over a decade, and they look forward to a long retirement. And Reagan is hopeful that he will continue to influence public debate during his post-presidency. He's also interested in making money, and he uh, takes some highly lucrative speaking engagements abroad, mainly in Japan. And he comes under a lot of criticism for taking the money, taking so much money. With the result that he decides that henceforth he will only speak to non-profit groups and student groups. 
But his hopes of shaping political debate in his post-presidency come to a premature end. The last significant address he gives is at the Republican National Convention of 1992. It's quite interesting in the age of Donald Trump to remember the key passage that was included in that. What else history may say about me when I'm gone, I hope it will record that I appeal to your best hopes, not your worst fears, to your confidence rather than your doubts. That was 1992. Shortly afterwards, Reagan begins to show signs of dementia. In fact, not shortly afterwards. In 1990 and 1991, Nancy Reagan has become worried about her husband and his memory losses. And it becomes progressively worse. Uh, Reagan has to finally accept that he that he has dementia. And this is shows remarkable bravery in this personal crisis. He decides that the media will be carefully watching him and that the intrusion to see just how bad he is. So he comes clean and he writes a letter to say that uh, he is suffering from dementia and um, could quote a passage from the letter, which is pure Ronald Reagan. On the 5th of November 1994, Reagan decided to make public the reality of his Alzheimer's disease. He hand-wrote a two-page note embossed with his presidential seal to tell the American people that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he remarks in it, I now begin the journey that will lead me into the sunset of my life. I know that for America, there will always be a bright dawn ahead. In the concluding episode of our five-part series on Ronald Reagan, we finally draw a curtain on an incredible journey through the life and legacy of one of America's most iconic leaders. This series, her labour of love and dedication, has spanned almost four years, a testament to the depth and the complexity of Reagan's impact on the presidency and the world. A special note of gratitude is owed to Professor Ewan Morgan, whose interview which then became the narrative of this show, recorded in depth at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in May 2020, has provided invaluable insights that have greatly enriched our series. The challenges presented by the pandemic extended our timeline and also the fact that I produce another five different podcasts as well. So I'm deeply appreciative of the patience and support shown by our listeners throughout this period. As we bring to a close our comprehensive series on Ronald Reagan, I'm excited to announce the upcoming episode of the 10 American Presidents podcast. Our next episode will be the final part of our in-depth exploration of the pivotal 1960 election. This episode promises to delve into the intricacies and the impact of this historic election on America, which not only shaped the course of US politics, but also left an indelible mark on the nation's collective consciousness. 
The election of 1960 and its dramatic narratives and groundbreaking moments is a story that resonates deeply with the annals of American history. So we will examine that and the key figures involved, their political strategies and the societal context which made this election such a cornerstone of the narrative of American democracy in the 1960s. Thank you again for your continued support and patience throughout our series. Your engagement has been invaluable and I look forward to sharing this next captivating chapter with you. Remember to tune in for this impactful episode and for more content on contemporary politics. You can visit my new YouTube channel, which is called Mid-Atlantic Podcast. Go over there and you'll see me rattle on, prattle on about geopolitics, US politics and contemporary UK politics. Additionally, if you've enjoyed uh, this series and wish to support the continuation and the growth of the 10 American Presidents podcast, please consider joining our recently revitalized Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash 10USP. That's patreon.com forward slash 10USP. Your contributions will help us keep producing quality content and exploring more fascinating aspects of American presidential history. Your support on Patreon is greatly appreciated and always plays a crucial role in our journey. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your feedback not only helps us to improve, but assists other listeners in discovering this podcast, this labour of love. Thank you for being such an integral part of our podcast community and thank you for your reviews. What I wanted to say, it's about your question about how Reagan is a conservative champion. In 2011, it was a centenary of Reagan's birth. Now, what's very interesting about this centenary is that the Democrats want to celebrate it as much as Republicans do, because they believe that uh, Reagan was a much more pragmatic and moderate leader than the kinds of leaders that are emerging in the party under the influence of the Tea Party movement. And it's significant how even liberal Democrats now begin to lionize Reagan as, yes, a man of conservative convictions, but also a man who was prepared to compromise in the interests of good government, something they would never have signed up to in the 1980s. And what's very interesting is that in the build-up the Reagan centenary, Barack Obama holds a dinner in the White House with leading historians of the presidency. I wasn't invited for some reason, but uh, anyway, the historians present said it was remarkable how Obama wanted to talk about Reagan. And uh, it became apparent to them that Barack Obama deeply admired Ronald Reagan as a transformative president. And he wanted to know how Reagan had the leadership techniques that Reagan had used to affect this transformation because his ambition was to be a transformative president himself, but in the opposite direction. It didn't work out for Obama, but Time magazine mocked up a front cover. And on the cover, Obama and Reagan are shown a very friendly comment and over a headline which says, Obama's best friend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.